Praise the Lord. We're in a series of messages of entitled Grace and Truth. Jesus, the Bible said, came to earth full of grace and truth. And so we, as his church, as his followers, uh, we should be people of grace, grace for our fellow human beings, right, that are just like us, that have struggles, that are fallible, right? We need to have grace for people. And truth, we need to be people of truth so that we have that truth that points us back to the Lord, back to his ways, back to those things uh, that lead us to the life and the blessing that he wants for his creation. A couple of weeks ago, we asked the question, where do we get truth? Where do we get truth? That truth that shapes our beliefs, uh, our worldview, that truth that uh, guides our decisions and our actions, the way we live. I quoted from uh, Jesus in John 17 where he's praying to the Father for his followers and he says, Lord, sanctify them, set them apart by the truth. He says, your word is truth. And so Jesus says we get our truth from God, right? From the only infallible one, from his word. But how does that word come to us? How does God's word come to us? Well, we could all get it right on the test, right? We would say, in the Holy Bible, this is where God's word comes to us. The uh, statement of faith for our church hanging right on the wall back there, uh, those core beliefs that shape the teaching of the church and give us guidance uh, for our Christian lives. That statement of faith, point number eight, says this, the Bible is the word of God. It reveals to us truth about God and truth about living a godly life. And then is quoted, Second uh, Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, reproof, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we as a church have affirmed this Bible to be the Word of God. But how do we, um, or any church or anybody, how do we come to such a high view of the Bible? How do we get there? I think that's a very, very important question that we need to answer as we walk through this life. Uh, think about it for a minute. The Bible, this book right here, tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, tells us that Jesus died on the cross for us, that by believing in him, putting our faith in what he did on the cross, right, we have eternal life. That comes from here, right? How many want to uh, bet your eternal destiny on something that is sometimes true, sometimes authoritative, sometimes the Word of God, right? We need to be convinced in our hearts and lives. We're, we're, we're not, only, not only betting our eternity on it, we're living day by day. So is this or is this not the reliable, authoritative Word of God that's a very, very important question that the church has been asking, right, for 2,000 years. So, I want, uh, want to cover 
a little, a few things this morning. Uh, author and pastor Barry Cooper has a great article on the authority of Scripture. Let me paraphrase that. He says, so you, you go to your radio, and let's say there's 66 different stations on the dial. And every single one of them is playing a song in the same theme. Every one of them is having one specific message at the same time, whether it's hip-hop, rock, jazz, easy listening, heavy metal, whatever, all 66 stations, one theme, one message. Could that be done? I suppose it could. What would, what would be needed? You would have to have one singular master plan, wouldn't you, for that to happen? So Cooper takes that and he, he illuminates the fact that the Bible is comprised of 66 different individual documents written by 40 different authors over a span of over 1,500 years. Authors from different geographical locations, um, different writing in different languages to different people at different times, yet all fitting coherently into one unified story of God's creation, man's rebellion, and God's redemption through Jesus Christ. In summary, Cooper points out that the Bible not only has one overarching storyline, but it has one purpose. One purpose, salvation. One main character, Jesus Christ. And all of this, he says, can happen, is true, because the Bible has ultimately one author. It's got to have one singular master planner behind it, doesn't it? One author. He quotes, um, again from, from 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed. And he goes on to say this, the authority of Scripture is grounded in the, in the authority of its author. So we know, right, that there is a creator. We know that he, above all, has the authority. So if we can tie this book in with him, we're in pretty good shape, aren't we? How do we do that? How do we do that? What is the evidence that this book right here that I'm holding in my hands is tied in with that particular singular author? Well, number one, continuity. Continuity. Again, 66 individual documents, 40 authors, 1,500 years, different languages, written on different continents, different times of people, and yet all fitting together to speak of one message. That's amazing when you think about it. Number two, the highest testimony imaginable. Jesus himself in just the little, I mean, John said if we had written everything, there wouldn't be enough books, you know, for the things that Jesus said and done. But just the little that we have in that three and, or three and a half years, uh, approximately, that Jesus spoke, he quoted from 13 of the 22 Old Testament books. And also, over and over, uh, validated the authority of the scriptures, referring a number of times to the law and the prophets. 
which is the whole of the Old Testament. He further testified to the authority of Scripture in John 10, where he stated that Scripture cannot be broken. And if that wasn't enough, look at what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. He says this, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Talk about testimony of the validity of reliability and authority of the Scripture. So we have uh, testimony. We have continuity. We have testimony. Number three, we have fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled pro- There's a number of prophecies uh, in our Bibles predicting future events hundreds, sometimes even thousands of years before they happen. For example, uh, Daniel uh, chapter 11, written about 535 B.C., accurately predicted that after the kings of Persia, another even mightier king would arise. And, and the scripture says, and he will do as he pleases, right? As he wills. And that his kingdom uh, after him would be split in four different directions, but none of them going to his descendants. Which is kind of an interesting, I mean, you know, kings, they always kind of went that way, right? So that was a little bit different as it was. And history records that after the kings of Persia arose one Alexander the Great, right? Who was mightier than all, conquered the whole known world uh, that, that, that you know we knew at the time. And isn't it interesting to note that when Alexander the Great passed away, his kingdom was divided four ways among his generals, not his descendants. All of this written some 212 years um, before it happened. Hmm. Fulfilled prophecy. So we've got continuity. We've got testimony. We've got prophecy. Uh, number four, how about archaeology? Archaeology. As much as this best-selling book, year after year after year, uh, translated in over 700 different languages, the New Testament over 1,500 languages, as much as it has been challenged right up to present day, it has never been proven false. Uh, for years, people uh, trying to prove the Bible false would say, well, you know, the Bible mentions this group of people. You know, somewhere in the Old Testament, the Bernadikites, right? Um, whoever they were. And, and there's no record of them anywhere else, so the Bible must be false. So then what happens is archaeology steps in, they dig somewhere, and all of a sudden here's this rock with this inscription, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years old. It talks about this people that nobody had ever heard of before, but the Bible said was there. Even the more liberal-leaning Time magazine uh, published an article uh, a few years back that said that archaeology has only supported the authority of the Bible. Interesting. Interesting, interesting. So we've got archaeology. Number five, um, affirmation throughout history of this book right here. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus wrote these very poignant words. He says this, And how firmly we have given credit to those books of our own nation is evident by what we do. 
For during many ages, as have already been passed, no one has been so bold as to either add anything to them or take anything from them or to make any change in them. But it becomes natural to all Jews immediately and from their birth to esteem those books to contain divine doctrines and to persist in them and, if occasion be, willing to die for them. So centuries of Jewish uh, attestation of the Old Testament as being divinely inspired Word of God. So that's the Old Testament. The New Testament books were written after Jesus ascended, so we obviously he couldn't comment uh, on those books. So if we can't go to Jesus, we go to the next best place, which would be the, uh, the apostles, right? The apostolic authority. Peter himself attests to the writings of Paul. Paul wrote, you know, two-thirds or so, almost three-quarters of the New Testament. Uh, Peter attests to the writings of Paul as Scripture. Did you realize that? 2 Peter chapter 3, 15 and 16 says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do, here it is, the other scriptures. So here is Peter, right? One of, one of Jesus' inner circle attesting to the writings of Paul as being Scripture. Uh, J. Warner Wallace, I don't know if you've heard that name before, he's a Dateline-featured cold case homicide detective, um, still works on cold cases. He became a Christ follower at age 35 after investigating the claims of the New Testament Gospels using his skills as a detective. Uh, you may have heard the, uh, uh, Lee Strobel uh, went, did his research as a journalist. This guy did his research as a detective. All right, I want to find out whether these Gospels are true or not. And through that, he became a Christ follower. He says this on his website. He says, I researched the writings of the generations of Christian students who followed the original New Testament authors. These early church fathers sat at the feet of the apostles and learned from the apostolic eyewitness accounts. These secondary leaders then wrote letters and documents of their own repeating the claims of their teachers. It turns out that the early church fathers did in fact quote the scripture as it was handed down to them. So not only do we have the words of the New Testament themselves, we have those early church fathers who sat at the feet of the apostles who also attested to the validity, reliability, and authority of these books that we have in our Bible. F.F. F. Bruce, a well-known author and professor of biblical criticism and exegesis, how's that, at the University of Manchester, England, not New York, um, in his book entitled, The New Testament Books, Are They Reliable? He writes this. He says, one thing must be emphatically stated the New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon, that is, in the, those that are um, books as seen as Scripture. They were included in the canon 
because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect. The first ecclesiastical councils to classify the canonical books were both held in North Africa in 393 and at Carthage in 397. But what these councils did was not impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of these communities. So they didn't get together and say, okay, we're going to decide, you know, these books are in, these books are out. No, this was something that by the time, you know, almost to the 400s, that the church had already, through the ages, said, these are the scriptures. And they merely put the final stamp on that. So the books of Scripture in our Bible, both Old and New Testament, have been for centuries regarded by the church of Jesus Christ as being the trustworthy, authoritative word of God. Well, that's all well and good, you might say, for the original writings, right? But how do we know that this Bible that we have in our hands today hasn't been, you know, fudged here and there and, and uh, changed by people to say what they wanted to say? Uh, you know, we know the originals are good, but what about what we have in our hands? That's a very, very good question. And one that I believe um, is good for us to maybe even do some further study on if uh, we're in that direction, if we're not sure that we're sure. Fortunately, there is a lot of good, detailed research out there, um, which we can find in books like Neil Lightfoot's Where Did We Get Our Bible? Or uh, another book that I have, Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now, Josh McDowell's a neat guy. He was someone who had a relative that, that you know, became born again, talking about Jesus, this and that, and he set out to disprove this. All this about the Bible, Christianity, the resurrection, all that, he set out to disprove it. And by the time he got done with his research, he became a follower of Jesus and has been one of the most uh, recognized uh, apologetists um, and defenders of the Bible and Jesus, and, and he's you know that evidence that demands a verdict is a is a book about this big, and uh, if you like to read a uh, lot a lot of good stuff in there, so um, you can dig deeper, and I would encourage you to do so. But let me just highlight this morning uh, what is undoubtedly the largest body of evidence for our Bibles reliability and authority. Case in point, um, there's other documents of antiquity that we have uh, that scholars uh, view as being historically accurate, uh, one of them being Homer's Iliad, right, about the Trojan Wars. Interesting that, that, uh, that Homer wrote that 400 years after the Trojan Wars, okay, so that's, that's, that's his manuscript. And the oldest manuscript that we have, the oldest copy that we have uh, uh, of his Iliad, is about 400 years after that. So, uh, also, the number of ancient manuscripts discovered of Homer's Iliad is around 200. 
So all of that evidence together, you know, talk to the, uh, the those scholars and all that. They, they say this book is historically accurate. By comparison, our Bible, we have 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts. And for both the Old and New Testament, we have more than 66,000 manuscripts and scrolls, all without any serious contradictions. For example, the book of Isaiah that we have in our Bibles, okay? The um, book of Isaiah was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, in 1947. Those Dead Sea Scrolls predated uh, anything that we had on the book of Isaiah to date by a thousand years. Okay, So here's we, we, we have this one that's dated back here. Oh, now we found a new one that's a thousand years earlier than this one that we have. And it was nearly identical word for word. Now that's, that tells me two things. That tells me, number one, that the human people that uh, those scribes that wrote and copied the Word of God were extremely careful in what they did and how they wrote. Um, that's a thousand years worth. I mean, you know, start a story over here, and by the time it gets over here, it's a whole, whole lot different. You do that in kindergarten too, right? A thousand years nearly identical. So not only does that speak of human care, but my goodness, that speaks of divine protection and preservation, doesn't it? Because God wanted, I mean, if, if He inspired it and He wanted to give this word to us, He is also going to um, protect it as He's speaking to those who write and protect it through the years so that what we have is reliable and authoritative from Him. Words that we can stand on when the going gets rough. Words that we can gain wisdom from for our lives. Again, to build our truth, to build our worldview. Words to live by so that we can have to live in harmony with Him, live in His ways, and receive the blessings that He has for us. So, um, I, I, and I've just scratched the surface, really, this morning. I wanted to kind of give it to you in a nut, nutshell. But between continuity, right, all those years, all those authors, etc., testimony by Jesus, by the apostles, by the early church fathers, archaeology, prophecy, history, not to mention the millions and millions of lives that have been changed over the centuries by this book all points to one thing this is the word of god this is the word of god again going back to our statement of faith the bible is the word of god it is truth from god truth for life amen so where does, that, where does that bring us? It brings us to that quote from our statement of faith, that quote from 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. That's an interesting Greek phrase. It's God-breathed. In other words, um, it was written by human beings, but it is 
um, just like it was spoken by God himself. That's how we should look at this, where it's just as if God breathed it out, God spoke it out himself. It's God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This book, for all the reasons that we've mentioned and more, right, is shown to be divinely inspired, God-breathed. Thus, truth, reliable, authoritative. And therefore, as the Scripture says, it's profitable, it's useful, it's beneficial. For what? For teaching. Right? For teaching. It's why we preach out of here and not, you know, other things. Right? It's profitable for teaching. Being God's textbook about life. Right? Think about it in this book right here. Uh, all of life, spiritual issues, relational issues, social issues, political issues, economic issues, not every detail, but the foundations for all of those are in this book. Aren't they? Yeah. It's all in there. It's profitable for reproof, right? To get us back on track. You're going the wrong way. This is the way to go. It's profitable for reproof. Similarly, it's profitable for correction, right? Because it's truth. The Bible is useful and beneficial to correct that which is not true, which is misguided, which is deceptive, right? We can correct wrong ideas, wrong uh, ideology and, and things that are out there. They can be corrected. And it's profitable for training in righteousness. The Bible is God's instruction manual for us. Right? Learning to do what is right. Training in righteousness. You want to know the right way to think about something? You want to know the right way to do something? You want to know the right way to live according to the Creator who made us in the first place? It's all here. All in this book. It's useful for training in doing what is right according to God. So, this word given to us, given for us. Why? So that we may be complete, God says. So that we may be complete, lacking in nothing. As you and I uh, wind our way through this world, through this life, with all of its twists and turns, and this one saying this, and this one saying this, and all this, you know, uh, going on. This is it. This is the foundation. This is what is reliable. This is what is authoritative. This is truth from God to us. I'll tell you, um, th think about through the centuries. Think about groups that, that got off into being cults and, and uh, you know, this and that. Why? Because they got away from this. This has been the foundation. This has been the bedrock. This is the plumb line, if you will. This is, this, this is the thing um, 
this is the tuning fork. When we're all in tune with this, we're all going to be in harmony one to, one to another, right? But this has been the safety net for thousands of years. When, when churches and people and society have stood upon this, they have fared well. When they have walked away from this, there has been destruction and death. Right? Because God in His love, His compassion, and His mercy has given to us an incredible gift. Not only for church, not only for society, but for our lives. That's why you know we read it, we meditate on it. God says to Joshua, you meditate on this book day and night, then you will have good success. God wants us to have success. He wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to have peace and joy. He wants us to be able to weather storms. He wants us to be able to get along with one another. All of that He has put in here for us. The truth. And when we get on this and we do it together, we're in harmony. When we get off of this, we get into trouble. Right? Thank God for His Word given to us. What's that old children's song, you know, that we learned how, how many years ago? The B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. I wonder how many kids actually thought of that phrase, I stand alone on the Word of God. In other words, no matter what anybody else is doing or saying or whatever, if I need to, I'm trusting God and I'm going to stand on His Word. Moses stood before all of Israel after they had come into the Promised Land. And he, they had their... You know, there are Ten Commandments, and, and uh, he, he held it up before them, and he said, listen, I set before you today life and death, blessing and cursing. Right. Joshua, when he came into the promised land, he said to the people, hey, if God be God, serve Him. If Baal or these other gods of, of the culture around you, if they're God, Go ahead and serve them. He says, but as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. The church of Jesus Christ. In grace. In grace for a broken world that we live in and are surrounded by. Grace for people, love for people, acceptance of people, showing worth to people. But this, this is our plumb line. This is our foundation. This is what we walk by. Which tells us to have grace and love and mercy and compassion, right? We need it more than ever. We need it more than ever. This, this, this book is just being challenged on so many fronts in our day. And I mean, of course, it has been for the last 2,000 years. But on so many fronts in our day and in our time, it's time for us to say, I'll stand alone on the Word of God if I need to. Because when it comes right down to it, 
Who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust ourselves? Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. <laughs> that didn't work. Are we going to trust the words of people? Fallen, broken people? Or are we going to trust in the only infallible one who has given us this incredible book of his wisdom for us? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word that is truth. Your word that is reliable and authoritative. Your wisdom given to us, Lord, for life. Life as you intended. Life in harmony with you and life that is blessed by you. Life that, that provides for our deepest needs of love and worth and peace, strength. Draw us, Lord, into your word. May we revere it. May we shape our lives, our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions according to it and truly find our best life in you. We thank you, give you all the glory, all the honor. Through Christ we pray. All God's family said, Amen and Amen.